Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Well, neighbors, some of you have been asking me about David Biedney. When's he going to come back? Well, here's the news, ladies and gentlemen. David has decided to return to civilian life. He's gone back to his day job. So we wish David the best of luck in his new pursuits. Our guest host again this week is Paul Kimball. And you wrote a very fascinating post over at forum.theparacast.com, the famous Paracast community forums I want to talk about. And to preface this, Paul, we had an episode a couple of weeks back featuring Frank Warren and Scott Ramsey about the Aztec case, which obviously you don't buy. And one of the points you raised was some background about Frank Scully. Now, we all know Frank Scully was a variety columnist. And a couple of things I read from him, he seemed like a pretty straight guy, but he had a pretty wacky background, didn't he? Yeah, I've had a long-running sort of tete-a-tete with Scott and Frank. And, and Scott, I worked on a film with him, uh, the Aztec 1948 film. I actually made it back, I think, five or six years ago. And they're, they're very nice guys, so it's not personal. But I think they're just dead wrong about the Aztec case. And so does pretty much everybody else who's ever looked into it. Um, I've called it Ufology's Dracula. Because it seems to be the one case that you can stick a stake in it, like J.P. Kahn did back in the 50s. Literally, how can you get a bigger stake than, you know, the two guys that are perpetrating this thing are frauds and con men. And the guy who's telling the story, Frank Scully, with a wink and a nudge, is, despite what Scott will say, and he said it in the film, sort of their version of the Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather of their day, when in fact, it's probably more appropriate to call him the Pat O'Brien, Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, Jay Leno of his day, you know, kind of a bit of all of that stuff. The man wasn't a journalist. He was a gossip columnist. He was a humorist, a reasonably decent writer when it came to stuff like that. But to call Frank Scully a serious journalist is not just a stretch in logic, it's patently false, then there's nothing that can back that up. But because so much of the Aztec case, in a sense, hangs on Scully's credibility as a person who could read Silas Newton and read Leo Jabauer and read these guys, who could sift through the information, who you know couldn't possibly have been fooled by these people. I mean, how could he be so gullible? He was the Dan Rather or Peter Jennings of his day. Well, they kind of need that in order to buttress their claims, but it's just not true. And so I did, after I made the film, and like any filmmaker, you can make a film without agreeing with what either side says. So in the film, Scott gives his take on it, but we also have Carl Flocks, the late Carl Flock, who's a good friend of mine, sitting there saying, well, okay, no, look, here's who Silas Newton really was. Here's who Leo Jabauer really was. Here's who Frank Scully really was. Here's how J.P. Kahn and others exposed that. And it was all a hoax and a scam. And the interesting thing, Gene, to digress for a little bit, is Carl often had a reputation of being a debunker because he was one of the foremost proponents of the mogul explanation for the Roswell case. And he certainly uh, was very vehement about Aztec being a hoax. But Carl's point was, often overlooked, he said, well, look, why would you talk about the Aztec case, which was bunkum, when just down the road in Farmington, New Mexico, there was a case in 1950, the so-called Farmington Armada, which Carl took very seriously, where dozens of people reported 
I guess the only way you could describe it would be a fleet of, of strange craft or something, UFOs, flying over the town of Farmington. And then it was reported in another section of the state, Las Vegas, not Nevada, but Las Vegas, New Mexico, by other people shortly thereafter. So Carl, far from being a debunker, was a guy who said, look, no, I believe in good UFO cases. He thought the Farmington case was a good UFO case, but... His problem was that cases like Aztec would come along, the sexy flying saucer crash, bodies recovered case, and with very little or no evidence, you know, people would get sucked into that and it would distract them from good solid UFO cases, which is why Carl and I get along so well. The one thing here about Aztec, and this is what has to be, if we take that book behind the flying saucers out of the picture, and Frank Scully never existed. Is there an Aztec UFO case? So obviously, Frank Warren and Scott Ramsey will say, well, they interviewed witnesses in Aztec, New Mexico, that gave them information that corroborated everything. They would say that, of course. But I would encourage people to go to my blog, redstarfilms.blogspot.com. Go back to 2005 when I wrote an awful lot about the Aztec case. Because Scott is not the first guy. To, he didn't magically rediscover Aztec in the 1990s after it had lied dead for 40 years. Various other people had brought the Aztec case back to life. Again, Ufology's Dracula. The most notorious of which was a guy named William Steinman, who wrote a huge book called UFO Crash at Aztec in the 1980s. And what Steinman did is he, um, and I can't remember the exact how he got on to the Aztec case, but he went to Aztec. He did basically what Scott is saying he did. Went around, interviewed a whole bunch of people, stirred up a hornet's nest, um, frankly ticked a few people off too. And if you read the book and you go through it, I wrote a series, I think a four-part series on William Steinman's research, a fair bit of which mirrors the kind of research that Scott and I presume Frank have done in the last, say, 10 years. And you can see the flaws not only in his research methodology, but in his conclusions. It's, it's clear that he was a believer who was looking to find, or he found the answer that he was looking to find. So where's the witnesses? Then you go, I would encourage people to go to, the. it's 2005, you can find it in my archive section. Witnesses like Fred Reed and Scott used to, and I honestly haven't Scott, talked to Scott in a couple of years. I don't know if he still does, but he used to tout a guy named Fred Reed as a credible witness. And people bandy that term witness around. Witness means you saw the flying saucer. None of these people were witnesses. What they were, in effect, were people who had heard the story or were aware of some aspect of the story. So they're not true witnesses. They're secondhand witnesses to the story, if you will. Anyway, he claimed that Reed was an actual witness, though. And I deconstruct Fred Reed's story in about you know, a page and a half or two pages worth of text. And it's something that a basic, you know, investigation 101, if you were looking at it objectively, there should have been immediately re red flags raised with a guy like Fred Reed or other people. And again, it's the same kind of thing that's happened in Roswell. It's what Carl did with Roswell. You hear these claims of dozens or hundreds of witnesses. And yet when you actually go through and you say, well, look, let's line these witnesses up and let's look at them individually, case by case. What did they witness? Are they credible? You know, does their story hold up? All of a sudden, the hundreds of witnesses or the dozens of witnesses get whittled down to, well, okay, maybe two or three witnesses and in, in Roswell, or maybe five or six. The key is here, Paul, to kind but of... There's no, witnesses in, there's no witnesses in Aztec. That's Okay, I'm that's saying. the key. The key is you're taking a handful of witnesses, a handful of witnesses, and a bunch of people who say, we heard what they heard. 
yeah. or they said this to me. But in the case of Aztec, you say there's no direct witness to this crash or this landing, whatever it was. Name one, I would say to Scott or to, um, to Frank, name one credible, proven witness who saw anything. Anyone. Give me a name that we can track down, that we can check ourselves. Fred Reed was one that Scott floated a few years ago. I checked, and that's not a credible story. So I, I suppose all we can do is wait for Scott's book. But, you know, Scott's been writing that book for seven or eight years now. And eventually, you know, publish or perish, put up or shut up. So you carry this case on, you do radio appearances and conference appearances, and Aztec's been around for 60 years. Um, I can't see how they're uncovering new information that hasn't been uncovered before. So I think it's probably time for Scott to actually publish his book and say, here's what I've got. And it's either good or it's bad. I'm sure it's bad because I'm pretty, I know what he's got. But put it out there instead of just showing up on a radio show and repeating the same stories that have been told for 60 years. And if that sounds harsh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but isn't that the case with a lot of these cases here? We have this ancient history. And the same is true with Roswell. We have a handful of witnesses, direct witnesses, so-called direct witnesses, a lot of indirect witnesses, a lot of secondhand stuff, people remembering what has passed through the telling, the retelling of 50, 60 years. There's no hope, is there, that we'll ever get to the bottom of that? Well, I think in the case of Aztec, we got to the bottom of it a long time ago. And so all they're trying to do is dredge up a case that was dead back in the 1950s. In the case of Roswell, Roswell is a little more complicated than Aztec. I mean, Aztec is open and shut, unless you desperately want to believe. Roswell, there's still a hint, I think, even for skeptics, that something happened at Roswell. It might not have been aliens from Zeta Reticuli, but maybe something crashed there. There was some secrecy, perhaps even a cover-up, whatever it was. Mogul, top-secret government experiment, as Nick Redfern's posited, or, you know, Stan Friedman's aliens. Who knows? And so, assuming we don't have the answer yet, or assuming the answer's there, but 60 or 80 percent of the people don't accept it, as Nick Redfern once said to me, and I, I agree with him wholeheartedly, we'll never know. You're quite right, Gene. Roswell has now drifted into the realm of legend and myth. It is ufology's Camelot, King Arthur, Robin Hood, whatever you want to call it. And there's nothing more to be gleaned there. All that people are doing is arguing over things that have been out there for 30 years. The, uh, the Raimi memo is a perfect example. Guys like David Rudiak argue with other people about the Raimi memo. And they've been arguing about that for 20 or 30 years. And they're never going to change each other's minds. So it's time for ufology to get out of the time warp. It's like being caught in one of those Star Trek temporal loops where you just keep repeating the day over and over and over again. Eventually, you have to get the Enterprise out of the temporal loop. And it's that's like the what, movie Groundhog Day, where exactly. Bill Murray has to become a mensch before the day ever ends. We have to menchify ufology, exactly. Okay, that's, so we menchify ufology, and then we'll stop talking about Roswell, stop talking about Aztec. And I'll tell you, the reason I even brought the subject in talking with Frank Warren about guest hosting some episodes, and he'll be doing more, the reason I brought up this particular one is because we had Kevin Randall on the show, and Kevin Randall put it down. I said, well, okay, well, Kevin Randall's saying there's nothing to it. Let's get the people who think otherwise to express their point of view Give them their two hours, and then let the chips fall where they may, and certainly we know where you stand. Okay, 
Paul Kimball, who do you have in store for us on this week's episode? We're doing an episode? Oh, I thought this was just a short little hit, and then I was going to... Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, you know what? You have to sit down. Just take a hot tea. Oh, no. And I know it gets uh, kind of cold in Nova Scotia at this time of year. So have some tea, a little bit of Kung Pao chicken. Kung Pao chicken, nice. You dig that? It's kind of fattening, though, isn't it? Kung Pao. Yes. Um yeah. Mike McDonald. We have a friend of mine, a fellow filmmaker. This is my attempt to do David B. Edney humor, and it clearly doesn't work. We have a friend of mine named Mike McDonald, who's a filmmaker here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And not he's related done. to the singer who works with that band in, from L.A. No. And he's done a number of documentaries about the UFO phenomena and uh, and, and the paranormal, too, including The Antichrist. He's done a, a, a TV piece on The Antichrist. So all sorts of things to talk to Mike about tonight. And... He knew Forey Ackerman. He did. And he did the definitive documentary on Forey Ackerman just before Ackerman passed away. Um, famous Monster, the Forey Ackerman story. Yes, F.J. the Acker Monster. I knew him. I told Mike that. he's. I think Mike's as interested to talk to you as you might be to talk to him vis-a-vis Forey Ackerman because uh, he's a huge, huge fan. Coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap, where we host many great contests, or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Michael McDonald, filmmaker. You knew Forey Ackerman in his final years, so let me tell you about my Forey Ackerman stories. I was a reader of famous Monsters of Filmland many, many years ago, and they had this contest. Forey Ackerman is traveling around the country. You write a letter, explain why you want Forey Ackerman to come to your home and have a little, you know, a little gathering with other readers of the magazine. And I did, and they called me and said, he's coming. And so... I set it up like a radio talk show with a bank of microphones, an old-fashioned analog tape recorder. Perfectly decent guy. I think his publisher may have been with him at the time, Jim Warren, where I met him in other circumstances. But anyway, we had a pleasant couple of hours, pleasant lunch, and a few years later, I was a commercial radio broadcaster. 
But that's where it all began, and now you know the rest of the story. Tell us Uncle your Forey Ackerman story. Uncle Forey. Um, actually, I didn't read Famous Monsters of Filmland when I was younger. I, I knew of it and probably flipped through one at, at the store, but I never actually bought one. But I was into monster movies, uh, particularly into Frankenstein and, and Dracula, the Universal Pictures, and some of the newer stuff, too, at the time. We've been talking about the late 60s, early 70s. But it was actually in... I did a film called Visions from the Edge, the Art of Science Fiction, and I and I... I went out and I found people who were doing cover art for books and, and posters in the science fiction genre. And I wanted to break the documentary up. And somebody had, and my friend Ian Johnson and, and, and my filmmaking partner Ian Johnson had suggested Forey Ackerman to me because he had known of Forey and read Famous Monsters. So I actually had him in a film showing his collection of sci-fi art and, of course, the other memorabilia before even really I, I really had a clear idea of who he was. <laughs> And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I actually made the film about Forey Ackerman. What should we know about Forey Ackerman? He actually had a paranormal experience one or two during his lifetime, didn't he? I don't know about that. Forey was always very uh, circumspect about uh, the paranormal. And, and he liked science fiction. He liked the stories. He liked the idea of space platforms on the moon and rocket ships. Um, and he liked the idea of monsters. But uh, when it came to the afterlife and paranormal, Forey didn't say a lot, at least to me. Um, he didn't believe in the afterlife, which uh, I found kind of striking and odd, considering Forey's otherwise extremely um, outgoing and, and permissive view of the world. I mean, he was definitely an interesting guy. You know Forey could speak Esperanto. Yes, I did, yes. Along with William Shatner. Very few gonna... people on this planet know what Esperanto is anymore. I know my first wife could speak Esperanto. Oh. <laughs> so, so Forey was a big fan of Incubus then. That was the film Shatner did, wasn't it, that, where they did the whole thing in Esperanto? Was it Incubus? I think it was. Oh, if it was in Esperanto, Forey would have known about it. But what he quoted to me were lines, beautiful lines from uh, The Invisible Man and from uh, Frankenstein. Anyway, uh, I, I had him in this film. I thought he was a wonderful guy. And I did have a good idea of who he was. But Ian Johnston in Toronto, he's my writing partner and... Uh, a filmmaking partner. We both did famous monster Forrest J. Ackerman together. Ian knew a lot more about Forey and, and educated me on Forey in between trips. And I had many trips to Forey's place. We've been at the House of Pies and we've had the, I've watched Forey pick apart a couple of hamburgers in my time. So I got to know him more on a, you know, oh, you're a very interesting guy and he was very respectful to me and, and knew what we were up to making this film. But in, in a way, it was just sort of for him, it was a natural thing. He didn't make a big deal about it. It's like, okay, you're here, you're making a film about me, let's go eat. And so that's the story I've had. And I miss him. It's, um, it's sad. I, while you were talking, Mike, I checked on the, the internet. And what's sad is I'm such a William Shatner fan that I actually was right. I know the name of the film that he was in where he spoke Esperanto. It's, uh, it's Incubus. Oh, oh, cool. Incubus. 1965, black and white classic, and I use the term classic. Yeah, I gotta write that down. I want to see that film. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually kind of fun, but they they do it pretty much all in Esperanto. So I'm sure Ackerman would have known about it. My sort of uh, question to you is: I remember seeing your film, and I'm pretty sure I saw this. Didn't he have a full Cylon warrior in his house? It what was not a Cylon. It wasn't a Cylon. And, oh, and Ian straightened me out on this. It's actually a different robot from a different film, that, although it does resemble a Cylon. And yes, he did have it there. And oh, okay. Because not Robbie the robot from Forbidden no, Planet. No, no, it, he it didn't have a Robbie the like robot, but he did have a, but he did have Abe Lincoln's chair. 
which Ian guiltily went and sat in before he wasn't looking. Wow. <laughs> and, of course, he had the Dracula's Ring, which, by the way, um, is in Halifax and owned by a local sculptor, actually world-renowned sculptor, who does a lot of work for the White House. Um, he, I actually saw this ring. I've seen this ring more than once. Not on Forey's finger because he had it in a glass little little uh, hang-up sort of stereo yeah. going. Well, actually, anyhow, I did see him wear it. When he visited us in New York, he was wearing it. That's cool. And, and that's weird that you mentioned that because, um, little known fact, David Manners, the actor who played Jonathan Harker in the original Dracula, was originally from Halifax. There you so, go. And so there you go. Dracula has tracked him down. Pardon? Does he have a star on the boulevard? Because if he did, Ian would have picked it out. That was the great thing about making this film. I can't talk enough of good things about this guy. I wish he was on the show. But this guy knows Hollywood, and, and he has a particular love of horror and sci-fi, and it's because of our collaboration that we, we were the only people to make a, a film about Forey Ackerman exclusively and have it broadcast, and we did it before he died. And it's sort of a... It's sort of a bittersweet, you know, I mean, I'm glad that I was, I, I sort of was the last one to sort of film him in his last days, and he was filmed by other crews for different purposes, but that, to do an entire film on him, and you know, here's a funny story, is, uh, those who know out there in Radioland, Forrest Ackerman, know that he was the congenial uncle of science fiction and horror, an editor of a magazine that people, um, that kids would be able to write in, like Joe Dante wrote a piece of the 50 worst films he'd ever seen in his life, and as he admits, some of them he'd never actually seen before he turned it into an article. So he took care of these young minds like Stephen King and George Lucas and uh, David Show and, and, and Dan Roebuck and, 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 and all these great filmmakers and actors that are out there right now. He, he's, he, he was a big influence in their lives. Mostly by the simple fact that he was a very kind man who really loved people's enthusiasm that matched his or any kind of enthusiasm, and um, was was very humble and always welcomed them into his life and into his house. That's the man, Forrest Ackerman. It just happened to be sci-fi and horror. Now, did you ever ask him about the? Because you've made a number of films about the UFO phenomenon, and had before you made the the Ackerman film. Did you ever talk to him or ask him about what he thought of the UFO phenomenon? Because there's there's always been a very, at best, not at, well, yeah, sometimes antagonistic, but a leery relationship, a sort of standoffish relationship between science fiction and ufology, ufologists. So did you, did you ever talk to him about the UFO phenomenon? Well, yeah, in a roundabout way, we talked about Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. And that was as close as we got to, and uh, of course, you know, he told us the story, and it's in my film, that uh, L. Ron borrowed 40 bucks from Forey back in like, God knows, 1940-something, and continued to not pay him back, and even to the point where Forey went up to him, when L. Ron was, was signing copies of his book, and he said to Forey, he says, you know what, I'm bigger than Clark Gable, and Forey said, well, good, you can pay me the 40 bucks, he said, well, you know, I just don't carry cash with me anymore. <laughs> And I asked so him now, by the way, knowledge. we've exposed the Scientology movement, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be attacked. <laughs> Sorry about that. Tom Cruise is going to go on my couch. He's going to jump up and scream at the top Listen, of his lungs. You, 
you don't want to be with me on Hollywood Boulevard when I'm walking by Scientology people. It's not pretty. But anyway. uh, yeah, I've done the same thing. They say, would would you like an e-meter reading or whatever it is? I remember Greg Bishop and I walking down, and this this very nice girl stuck her thing out and said, would you like a free personal reading or whatever? And I said, hey, look, lady, if I wanted to hang out with a cult, I'd go hang out with the Moonies. So <laughs> Greg, Greg was like appalled for about a second until he we got away and he said, you don't talk to them like that here. They'll follow you. I think I was just so rude. She kind of just ignored us. But yeah, you know, it's like they're all over the place. You can't walk down Hollywood Boulevard without running into them. So that 40 bucks probably was what Hubbard used to start. That was the grub stake for Scientology. So well, God knows. I mean, Forey lent, uh, Forey gave $30 to uh, Ray Bradbury to go to the very first Worldcon science fiction uh, wow. conference in New York. And Ray Bradbury took the train all the way to New York before he gave him that money. This guy, Forey Ackerman, I can't say enough about him. Forrest J. Ackerman, no dot after the J. As he would say, J stands for Jehovah, and you're my witness. <laughs> he had this fabulous museum of memorabilia in his home in Los Angeles. After he died, what happened to that stuff? It was taken care of by the estate and partitioned and then auctioned off. Chunks of it were auctioned off. Before he had a list of 99, I think, or you know what? I don't know. It could be 26. But uh, it was it was talked about at the uh, memorial that was at the Egyptian Theater in March last year. Some people were directly given stuff. Other stuff was auctioned off, like, for example, the ring, which ended up actually in the hands of the Halifax sculptor, which is interesting. Some of it is, is on eBay. There's lots of stuff on eBay. Ian, my partner, is snatching stuff up, little bits and pieces here and there on eBay. He has actually forced uh, for his uh, birth certificate, which I believe has Clark written as his middle name. There's some confusion about his middle name. But he basically picked up all of that stuff, or from your film, I got uh, at least a lot of that stuff, which now, you know, we would sort of say, this is amazing memorabilia, worth a lot of money. But he just picked it up, if not quite out of the trash bin. People were throwing this stuff away because they didn't have it, see any junkies. value to it. It was yeah. considered junk. Same thing in uh, Visions from the Edge. A lot of the uh, older pieces of artwork, you know, some of this beautiful classical stuff now was, you know, literally found in dumpsters or up in attics, and it's considered to be kind of trifles. Yeah. But uh, and now are treasures. Wow. Forrest J. Ackerman. A secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking on the Paracast with Michael McDonald. Our special guest host is Paul Kimball, 
and we're talking to my friends north of the border. Michael is a documentary filmmaker. He did, of course, the one about Forrest J. Ackerman, the famous monster himself, someone I knew just very slightly when I was much, much, much younger. But he's also done a number of films about UFOs and the paranormal. In the course of making those films, he also came to know a dear departed friend of ours, Mac Tonys. Tell us about Mac Tonys. Mac Tonys. Well, Mac Tonys, God rest his soul, is a wonderful guy. I think he died at, what, 34? Yes. Right? 34 years old, of a heart attack. um, I spent two years ago, I spent a summer with him traveling around the Southwest, as well as the San Francisco area, Mountain View, shooting an episode of a TV series produced um, by Vision Network, uh, produced for Vision Network in Canada, called Supernatural Investigator. And uh, that particular episode we were shooting was called Life from Other Planets. The original premise of the series was, do you believe in? So we pitched, do you believe in, dot, 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 life from other planets. Not on other planets, from other planets. So it was inclusive. So Mac was recommended to me, actually, by Paul. And I'd asked Paul if he wanted to be the investigator that would sort of lead this half-hour documentary show on this journey. And Paul was busy, and but suggested Mac. And uh, so I got a hold of Mac, and very quickly we hit it off, and uh, we did the research up front, and uh, he was approved by the network. In a couple of months, we found ourselves you know, down in Arizona and uh, California and Wyoming shooting this episode. It was fabulous. Now, the truth is, I wasn't busy. You didn't offer me enough money, but I knew that Mac would work for coffee. <laughs> so, yeah, figured- yeah. Oh, yeah, Mac worked for coffee. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and espresso or whatever it was that he would well, drink. Mac, yeah, Mac and I, had a, we both had a love of espresso, so wherever we went, we would find an espresso place and just sit there, and I'd have, like, cigarette and espressos, and we'd have this espresso, and we would just talk about whatever. And so I got lots of little Mac-isms, which is really great. I'm assuming that most people, or a lot of people that are listening to the show, probably know of Mac, or if they don't, somebody should set him up. Well, you know why, of course, we've had... Several shows about Mac. Mac was on the show, and after he died, we had Paul and Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern on board to do a remembrance, a celebration of Mac's life. Yeah, I, I listened to uh, one of those books. When you guys were traveling around, one of the people that you ran into in Wyoming was Dr. Leo Sprinkle, right? Yes, that's right. Tell, tell us a bit about how you ran into Dr. Sprinkle and, and how Mac... You know, interacted with them. How, how did how did that? Well, it happened in a Best Western. It happened in a Best Western. We were uh, we were filming around uh, Wyoming. We were going up to the infrared telescope and uh, filming a sequence there with the astronomers. And uh, during a break period, uh, Mac was of course blogging and twittering and all that stuff. And uh, had gotten and Leo had gotten a hold of him and somehow, and they and they realized that they were in the same town. And so very quickly we added it to the schedule. And we, we, we didn't do much with Leo. We, we did an interview. We showed up at his place and Mac did an interview with him. But that was great. That was a great example of how the this, uh, Internet 2.0 really makes filmmaking a lot more interesting. Yeah. What did you talk to Sprinkle about specifically, or what did Mac talk to Sprinkle about well, in the context the episode, of the film? There was some tension in the episode because we were trying to deal with some people from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We are dealing with people from SETI. And they were concerned that we were going to discuss the paranormal aspect of UFOs or the supernatural aspect of UFOs probably more than they were comfortable with or to be associated with. And uh, so Leo was just a great find because, of course, Leo um, has personal experiences 
and um, has very strong opinions about the UFO phenomenon. So it worked out really great. And, and Leo provided in that episode, you know, a discussion that, you know, would have been difficult to get to otherwise. Because, I mean, when you're doing a documentary like this, you can just blab and talk and prophetize on the screen, or you can get involved with people and get their opinions and listen to them. And we were kind of heavy on the science end, and we wanted to have something on the on the UFO slash paranormal weirdness end. And I, I mean that in the, in the nicest way. But uh, so Leo was just sort of, it just because of the Internet and because of, of Max blogging and online presence, you know, it worked out just perfectly for us. I mean, you know, here we are in Laramie, Wyoming, and an interview pops up out of the middle of nowhere. That was awesome. With Leo Sprinkle, of all people, yeah. Um, what were what was Max's final conclusion? He, he talked to Seth Shostak, didn't he? Wasn't he one of the guys on your list, your hit list of people to chat with? There's some footage on the cutting room floor of, of Mac and Seth when things started getting heated up. Uh, they had, those two had sparred, you know, in it, you know, on the internet before. Either, yes. uh, yeah, and and honestly, I haven't read the stuff. Um, and Mac had some pretty strong opinions, and of course, so did Seth. So uh, there was stuff that was said that never made it to the show. But basically, you know, in the show, we just got Seti's point of view. And there wasn't a, there wasn't a heck of a lot of commentary going on. Uh, right. It could have gone another way. But, you know, we were doing three episodes. If we, if we were spending a year doing a documentary on this subject, it would have been totally different scenario. You know, we would have definitely made people uncomfortable and, you know, gone down roads that were probably, you know, verboten by some people but you know they get kind of roped into it because they're on camera but because of the nature of this series that we were doing we had to kind of keep it light but we don't so let's go down that road briefly yeah a minute or not so briefly what did mac (laughs) uh, yeah what were i can imagine because i'm well aware i talked mac at length about seti um and showstack in particular and he had a he had a very sort of heavy disdain for dr showstack while at the same time he would say, look, he's obviously an intelligent man, and he's certainly well-spoken, and he's wonderful on television and stuff, but that's it. <laughs> and then he would I say... I think Mac's basic opinion about it was, it comes down to, you know, are you doing science because you want to do exploration and you really want to push the boundaries, or are you doing science so that you can pay for your Beamer and that you can keep your country huh. club membership? I don't know. I mean, it can really, to me... And honestly, I tried to stay out of it because I was writing and working on another episode in the series, and I was just more or less babysitting that shoot. To me, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to go down that road. Did he actually say that to show stack that you're? Oh you're God, no! But I mean, you know, I mean, it just comes that down to that, that's you know the, the sort of gloves off argument that happens between the sort of different factions of research. I think people when when he passed away, they had this impression. And people's opinions of people change after they die. Uh, that Mac, and he was, he was a genuinely nice person, but that he was so nice that he would just kind of, uh, he was agreeable. And the truth is, he was a very disagreeable person. Oh, uh, Mac when, was disagreeable as hell. Just that Mac would, would always defer to the louder person in a conversation. And occasionally Mac would get his ire up and, and, and speak his word. But, you know, in, in the sort of hierarchy of conversation sometimes, Mac, Mac, Mac was a humble guy. And, you know, it's interesting is that even though Mac and Seth did sort of like have a face-on-face fire, it, was, it wasn't all that heavyweight. I mean, the producer, Jen, Jennifer at the time, thought it was potentially going to go get a little bit too kind of heavy-duty. But there was a good amount of respect between the two guys. Like, I mean, that's a great thing about Mac. And actually, as it 
tribute, in my opinion, to Seth too, is that they respected each other, and, and Seth actually showed him around quite a bit, and, and was quite accommodating. Yeah, well, you know, if if Seth Shostak and Stan Friedman could do a cruise across the Atlantic and have a series of debates about SETI and UFOs, I think Seth can get along with anyone. He's always seemed to be, you know, pretty agreeable and opinionated, and I guess that's what Mac was too, agreeable and uh, opinionated. Yeah. Well, well the question I ask about some of these house critics. Are they really critical of this stuff, or are they just doing a show? Well, yeah, there's a certain show business aspect to it. I mean, you know, there's people coming and going out of SETI all the time. There's there's people who actually put, put their money into it. They come in, you know, have a look around. and uh, and But, you know, by their own admission, SETI knows that they're only looking at an extremely tiny slice of the spectrum, let alone, you know, the physical locations. Um, and, and uh, I, you know, I don't really personally get the impression that they were trying to put across that, that you know, they were the be-all and end-all of definitively finding out whether there's life on other planets. But there's a certain sort of, you know, justification in their minds to what they're doing that would be non-sequitur to people who are thinking of outside-of-the-box approaches to alien contact. But the thing that also bothers me here is that if they actually get the signal, you know, because you think of the scene in Independence Day, we get the signal from outer space. They're out of business because then other scientific disciplines take over. Well, I don't know if I, I don't know if I agree with that because I think that if anything, it would be a boon to their business because first of all, they would actually have hard data that could actually focus their research rather than the random and sort of calculating way. And I think, I actually, I think they'd be, they'd be well seated. I think they're in a more tenuous position right now than they would be if they make, if not that they make contact. They've had plenty of bursts of information that, or things that look like information and, and all kinds of events that we don't hear about that they vet and then discard or save for later. I mean, who knows? We may, we may have actually picked up something. You know, ten years ago. Who knows? Yeah, I know what Gene's saying, though, and I think it's. I think his point is is valid in the sense that if you actually made contact or with an alien civilization, they're good scientists at SETI. But all of a sudden, there's an awful lot of good scientists on this planet that are working in a lot of other things that would become very, very interested in that very quickly. Who might not be interested in it right now because it obviously that's yeah, said all of the disciplines like like the geologists and you know even the paleontologists and and all of these ologists will be in there like like you know flies on dead rats for sure. <laughs> The only ones who wouldn't be invited would be ufologists. We're never invited to anything, I'll tell you. That's the problem here. Nobody will ever take us seriously. That's why we have Stan. Yeah. Well, we take our, they take themselves so seriously that I, I think they've got the taking seriously part of it covered. So um, it's interesting, though. A little, here's a little Mac tidbit for you and SETI. When we were co-writing the, um, the feature film that I'm doing later this year, Doing Time, the sci-fi film, there was a villainous character that was required. And Mac and I had long conversations about this, and we finally turned him into basically Seth Shostak. So there's a, there's, a, there's a character who shows up from, what do we call it, the, Science, the Space Exploration Foundation, Seth, and uh, the guy who shows up is this sort of 50-ish scientist, and he seems very nice and friendly, but it turns out he's the bad guy. Not, and I don't want to ruin the film, but there it is. And Mac, Mac and I had an awful lot of good chuckles about that, and uh, we, we sort of thought, are we going to get sued? And then we said, nah, nobody will know. And unfortunately, now they're going to know. So, If he knows, maybe he'd like the idea. You know, his ego will be kind of filled with the knowledge that he is 
The villain. Well, he's kind of like a Darth Vader. He sort of turns, you know, maybe he turns good in the end. I don't know. Yeah, it's the cultural impact, though, of, of SETI. Very little money, relatively speaking, goes into SETI. I mean, compared to other expenses on developing bombers and stuff. And, you know, they're searching for a needle in a haystack, and they don't even know if the needle's in the haystack, although they think it is. And yet they've per- SETI has permeated, I think, American culture, certainly, and probably most of Western culture, so that I think if you ask most people, they might at least have heard of it or seen it. And if nothing else, SETI is a tremendous public relations uh, bonanza triumph for them that ufology has just never been able to muster. And I've always wondered why, and I think part of it is because the SETI guys are just so disciplined. They stay on message consistently, they sound intelligent and articulate, and they, generally speaking, only put the best, most well-spoken of their members out front to the media, whereas ufology is like herding cats. So every now and then you'll get a smart guy like Jerry Clark or Stan Friedman, who even if you disagree, they sound smart. But then, you know, 18 other cats come in and ruin it for everybody. It's it's always struck me the difference between SETI and ufology. They're not that different in terms of, A, what they're looking for, and B, I would argue, sort of the scientific merit of how they're going about doing it. And yet one of them gets millions of dollars and scientific respect, and another one, even though it has scientists attached to it, gets no respect. And I, I've always wondered about that. I sometimes think it's more ufology's fault than anybody else's. Perhaps here's a list of uh, some, some sponsors of SETI. Ames Research Center, NASA Headquarters, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, U.S. Geological Survey, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, etc., 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 etc. Hewlett Packard, William and Rosemary Hewlett. So there's individuals and there's, and there's, there's uh, institutes. They get funding from a lot of different sources. I mean, they, they are, a, in, a, in a way, they're sort, of like a, a, they're sort of like a perpetual machine. I mean, as long as they don't find anything, they can keep on going. And when they do find something, things will fundamentally change if they do find something. They probably would have already if they were going to find something, in my opinion, but... Well, it comes back to the same issue again. If they found something, would that mean that they would have further research to do, or does that put the closing sign on the door saying eventually you shut down and now we prepare for the next stage involving other scientists? Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast you never know what's going to happen next I'll tell you what, the next stage of this show, with our special guest host, Paul Kimball, is with filmmaker Michael McDonald, who does documentary films. He's covered UFOs and the paranormal. In going into making these films, Michael, what is your viewpoint about all these subjects? I mean, when you make a film, you don't have to believe in the subject matter. 
you just want to make a good film to make a living or for artistic purposes or both what is your real feeling uh well my real feeling is i wouldn't have done ufo films if i didn't have an interest in them because uh, they were startup self-started projects of ideas that i came up with or things that i was interested in so i have like my history of ufos goes back to as far as i can remember as a matter of fact there's even an episode of my life a dream that i had that you know when i was just a small child it's that's that's featured in Mac Tony's book. Uh, what's the name of his book? I'm sorry. <laughs> the Crypto Terrestrials. That's right, The Crypto Terrestrials. Oh, you know, tell us about the incident because we are going to discuss the book on a future episode of the Paracast. Well, it, it, it's a dream I had that I always remembered. And uh, in the dream, I'm standing in a cave. I'm very young, like we're talking four or five years old. Standing in a cave with my father. And my father is extremely upset, unsettling, unsettlingly upset to me. I look over, I glance over to my left, and there sitting on a, I guess a rock throne, is a um, large pansy flower, like the, um, the kinds of pansies that when you look at them, they look like they have big eyes. And emanating from this creature, this being, is disdain, you know, to the nth power. That's sort of the basic sort of emotional it's disdain and it's arrogance and it's not friendly but it's not necessarily a an imminent physical threat and that's all it is it's a, it's a dream that stuck with me but the, the striking thing about it is that it's an early 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 life dream that stuck with me you know and remembered you know possibly you know at the very bare minimum yearly in my life if not more somehow it ended up in that book <laughs> You don't know what the context of how he used I haven't read his book yet. It's on its way to me. You don't know what no, the context is. No, I haven't seen the book yet. I haven't seen no, it. All I, I know is that Mike Clellan uh, contacted me because Mike and I met through a blog. And, uh, and Mike's thing is, is synchronicity and uh, wonderful blogs he has and really interesting thinking guy, an artist. He's a, he's a, I guess I hate to say cartoonist, but an illustrator probably be the better term. I had mentioned that dream in one of my blog entries on the... Uh, on the paranormal, and I think he picked up on that, and then just sort of decided. And, and Mac had made comment about it in his blog, and I think the two have been made it together into the book. Well, by the way, Mike did the illustrations for the book. That's correct. Really, really fascinating illustrations. And Mike has also been on our show a couple of times because he's had some of these weird synchronicity type experiences over his lifetime. In any case, Michael, you never had another dream or weird thing happen to you then. I've had all kinds of strange stuff happen. To okay, me. <laughs> okay. Let's hear this. Well, you know, nothing in, in particular that uh, alone that you can take, but if you look at over the lifetime experience, it just sort of adds up like, why was I interested in UFOs and, and aliens for so long in my life? Sure, I grew up when Star Trek was in its first run. Okay, I did watch it. Um, there's no doubt about it. And, and uh, Twilight Zone and. And all of those TV shows and the media, UFOs and, and aliens were prevalent. Um, so I have been exposed to that all my life. But I've also had like sort of experiences over my life too that I don't necessarily equate directly to. Like I wouldn't go up to Dave Jacobs and say, "Hey Dave, can you check me out? I might have met some aliens." I, I don't think I'd go that far. But you know, I mean, the world is uh, is not all that you see and touch. And people have connections with each other that are, you know, considered to be psychical or, or of a paranormal nature. Uh, there's ghost events, there's UFO events, there's alien events, there's Mothman, there's there's uh, popular culture and the sub and the and the uh, 
the subconscious, the collective subconscious. Um, so I think that synchronicities, as Mike Wellen, I think really quite, quite succinctly sums it up, is that it really does come down to synchronicities. That's why I love his blog so much. Um, and, and you notice how the subjects in his blog are quite wide and varied, but all fall, on, fall under that sort of synchronistic sort of aspect. So I, I've definitely experienced that in my life, over, over the years of my life. I, I've actually gotten quite sick of talking about UFOs and aliens, and I, and I joke about it because I guess I come to the conclusion that, you know, it's all well and good, but I've been reading everybody's opinion for the last, like, 25 years, including, you know, everybody from Whitley Strieber to Don Ledger and everybody in between. And everybody's got, a, you know, a point or two and strong convictions. And, uh, but, geez, you know, I don't think in my lifetime I'm ever going to know. And uh, so that sort of initial sort of, I think I can find out. I think I can find out it sort of faded away into cynicism. <laughs> I hate to say it. You know what? That's like a lot of people, a lawful number of people, awful large number of people, Michael, have exactly the same opinion. They get involved in this very enthusiastic, wow, it's the aliens. We're going to discover ET or whatever it is. And yeah. then it just gets dragged into the mud. And I know that our listeners have heard the story before. I got involved with UFOs early on. I got out of it. I felt it was toxic. I got back into yeah. it again. And here I am again. And I finally realized as I get older that might as well just go with the flow, see where it takes us. And maybe the discovery is its own reward. Now, Andy, yeah, exactly. And the other thing, too, is that, is that um, and this happens a lot, is that there's heated discussions between people. And there's all kinds of, you know, it's just normal human interaction kind of stuff that happens. And people decide they don't like something that somebody said or they don't like the look of somebody or whatever. And, and they get into these arguments. And the good thing, about, uh, the way I look at it from my position is, is that I can just sort of sit back and try to take from these arguments what I agree with, what I don't agree with it, without getting involved. <laughs> I just don't want to get involved in that. And I believe me, I mean, I've, I've hosted a UFO conference here here in Halifax in 2003. It was a successful conference. I had Dave Jacobs, I had uh, I had Don Ledger and Chris Stiles, and I had, um, I don't know, I had a few other And I should have had you, Paul. Yeah. And anyhow, <laughs> anyhow um, we, you know, I, we were accosted by... Um, uh, Billy Meyer disciples. I mean, you know, someone <laughs> camps out in, in Chris Stiles' apartment. Somehow they got into his apartment. He went into his apartment to pick something up and taking him around on press junkets. He's doing press junkets and taking him around. And uh, he opens up his apartment and there's two or three older people in their 60s sitting in his apartment on his couch, you know, <laughs> wanting an answer or actually wanting him to listen to their answer. Probably more of a better way to say it. And, uh, and Chris, to his credit, he's a cool cucumber, let me tell you. This guy's been around. He says, he looks at him, he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're up to. But I just want to tell you this. I want you out of my apartment before I get back. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I know people like that. I was looking at the list of some of the documentaries you've done, and this is one which has gotten really hot and heavy over at our forums. We have it at the forum.theparacast.com, and it concerns intruders, abductees, speak out. Oh, yeah. All right. So that, of course, gets to be very controversial because okay. not just people being abducted, but the methodology in researching oh. this. So how did you approach this subject? How did I approach the subject? Um, well, uh, 
I decided that uh, in the time and the money that I had, I could interview, I could get a hold of certain people. And when it came to uh, abductions, I thought of uh, Bud Hopkins, I thought of David Jacobs. I contacted them, they were available. Um, I actually had David down to uh, before to the UFO conference that I had, so I knew David. Um, I thought what he was talking about was extremely unsettling. And uh, in terms of his his research methodology, I can't really comment too much on it because, you know, I haven't forged through his files. But uh, we did actually have in the documentary a lady uh, from the U.S. who had been treated by Dave Jacobs or listened to by Dave, Dave Jacobs. She appeared in the film. Have you seen the film? No, I don't. It hasn't aired on American TV, has it? I just wonder whether it's out there in the... Uh, out there in an illegal download or something like that. Oh, I found some of my films that like, like that. Is that a All good thing or a bad thing? Does it bring more attention to what you do or just deprive you of income? Both. <laughs> yeah. It does It does both. Um, I, you know, I, if, if they're going to translate it into Russian and go through all that all that trouble, I'd prefer like at least to have the credits that I gave myself instead of being called the writer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting because Mike and I had a brief falling out. We're all friends now. Again, uh, it took a couple of beer, but we're good. But of all things, over alien abductions or the abduction phenomenon, because uh, as I recall, Mike, you put some posting up on your Facebook page, and I made some remarks about how, um, and people would know I have troubles with the methodology and, and all of that. And uh, Facebook is not the place to have those debates. That's, that's the one thing I think we can agree on. But it is, it's a very touchy subject, even within... Yeah, my mom sent a message like, what? What's going on? What? Explain to me what your conversation's about. I'm like, mom... I don't want to get into it. Yeah, no, don't. That's yeah. You don't face. It's not for Facebook. I don't but. know if we want to replay the debate, but you just piqued my interest, guys. So, all right, we know that. Oh, it was, oh yeah, you, well, you were already dancing around the bush. It's it's all about David Jacobs' uh, methodology and Bud Hawkins as well. Okay, well, here's the thing. Now we kind of know where Paul stands on this, which I is. Don't. Well, we're going we're to ask him if we need to explain to our listeners. So what do you think here? Do you think that it makes sense at all to try to use hypnotic regression to get this information? Is there any hope of getting accurate information, or is it just feeding the fantasy? That's a great question. That's a great question. What do you think, Paul? It's just feeding the fantasy. My problem is not with Jacobs personally or Hopkins or any of them as people. And the thing that I've noticed on the Paracast forum is it's become, and other forms, it's become very personal. They're, because of this dispute that Jacobs is involved in now, they're attacking him personally. And eventually I think they'll start attacking all of these people personally. For me, it's not personal, it's professional. And I do not believe that hypnosis is a valid tool for recovering memories. There's a reason why hypnotically induced testimony isn't allowed in a court of law, for instance. You, I wrote about it a couple of years ago. You can go to the Crown Prosecution Service website in the United Kingdom, for instance, and take a look at exactly how they deal with hypnosis. Now, the interesting thing is you can't use hypnotically induced testimony in a trial, but the police will use hypnosis as an investigative tool. Sometimes. Yeah, as a tool. Yeah. Right. Just like they'll use psychics. Well, I was just going to say, how, how valid is that, though? Because the police sometimes occasionally will use psychics. Um, but that points out to me, like, I would not use hypnosis as a tool for investigation. I think, especially in some child abuse cases in Canada, there was a very famous case in Saskatchewan years ago 
where um, you know it almost became like the Salem witch trials, where children's testimony was being colored and that sort of thing. I think it's a very dangerous tool, when especially when used by people who are not trained as psychologists or psychiatrists. If you have a guy like John Mack, who went at Harvard, he went through an entire review of what he was doing, and they said while there were a few methodological things that they perhaps didn't agree with, you know, he hadn't breached any ethics, what he was doing was perfectly perfectly fine. Mack is on one hand because, you know, that's what he did. But when you take a guy, and uh, this is not meant as a personal attack, but when you take a guy who's a history professor like Jacobs or an, an artist like Bud Hopkins, and all of a sudden they're going around hypnotizing people, I think that's very dangerous. And especially when you might be dealing with people who have you know, in some cases, severe mental problems, severe psychiatric issues. And uh, that's the problem I have with the abduction phenomenon. And people hear me say that, and I've talked to people in the UFO field, and they it's amazing. They will trot out the debunker label. And I know Kevin Randall took hits for this when he wrote his book, The Abduction Enigma, and basically came to the same conclusion about hypnosis. But I say that if you take all of that out, you still have... As with the UFO phenomenon itself, I think you still have a small number of cases, much smaller than Hopkins or Jacobs will will sort of assert, but you still have a small number of cases that you can't explain, and this, I think, was John Mack's conclusion, that are very interesting, that deserve further research, serious scientific research, because there might be something going on, and we might learn something. But... It doesn't mean that they're hybrids from Zeta Reticuli or whatever that are planning on taking over the Earth. So the, the real problem I have, I suppose, is the methodology. And then also, as is the case with so much in ufology, people taking a certain piece of evidence or a certain group of evidence and then drawing a conclusion from it and saying, okay, well, here's this, and then it has to be this. And I know that's one of the things that always annoyed Mac, and it annoys Greg and Nick and I, and that's why we all got along so well, because we would look at, at the evidence and say, well, okay, yeah, it could be that, or then it could be that, or it could be that, or it could be that. And so I don't like the conclusions, and I don't like the methodology, even though I think there's still an enigma there that deserves serious scientific study. So well, there, that's, you, that's my position. just state outright what David Jacobs conclusion is, in my recollection, pretty wild, is that uh, the uh, Earth has been uh, infiltrated uh, by aliens who have created hybrids, and they've been doing this since the late 1870s, and at this rate, they'll have X amount of the population converted by X date, and uh, holy mackerel, look out. And that was the basic message, and I found that just, like, kind of outlandish, but at the same time, I'm like, well, you know... God knows. I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, how uh, based on, you know, to me, I just looked at it as he has assured his public that he has witnessed uh, or has studied many cases and has found correlations and has control questions to weed out obvious fakes. And, and personally, I mean, I haven't gone through his files. Um, there's not a lot of people who are willing to put what they have to say and, and you know, quote-unquote, back it up with research out there in book form and on the Internet and on the lecture circuit. You know, from my point of view as a filmmaker, what am I supposed to do? I mean, who am I supposed to talk to? You know, I mean, this guy is a widely published and um, 
And some would say somebody who's going out on a limb, considering his academic stature in the field, you know, why wouldn't we at least take a look at what he's saying? And I think, Paul, you agree with that. It's just you're questioning his methodology, which I can't really comment on. I mean, I agree with a lot of things you say there. You know, there's nothing I really disagree with other than the fact that I'm not so sure that hypnosis is, suggest is as suggestive as maybe you are. I'm not so sure about that. And that's something we'll have to debate, I think, a bit more on the other side of the show. For those who want to learn more about the things you do, Michael McDonald, before we start Hour 2, where do they go? Um, but for me, the best place to see what I'm up to is to go to IMDB, Internet Movie Database. And uh, you can go to uh, uh, my name, Michael McDonald, and uh, you'll see uh, you know, one of the UFO shows on there. Um, other than that, I, my, my uh, roadhousefilms.ca website is down, and I'm retooling. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to come up with next. If you really want to get a hold of me, find somebody who knows me <laughs> or Facebook me. That's how we found you. That's how we found you. We'll have more with Michael McDonald and our guest co-host, Paul Kimball, on the other side of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links that's the forum links at theparacast.com welcome back to the Paracast. Our guest co-host is Paul Kimball, and we're talking to filmmaker Michael McDonald, who did what they call the definitive story documentary about sci-fi legend Forey Ackerman, forever in his debt we are because of that. And before we actually ended part one, we were talking about UFO abductions, the elephant in the room, and Paul and Michael were giving slightly differing viewpoints about it. The thing that troubles me about this whole thing about Dr. Jacobs, and he seems like a very nice, gracious guy, very smart guy, is this alien hybrid thing. So are the aliens going to take us over, Paul? Is that what it's all about? Yeah. You know, he titles his, one of his books, The Threat. And uh, so I don't think he's taking it in the sense that, oh, the aliens are here to help us. I think that's pretty self-evident. And my thing about Jacobs, who I've met, I've, I've sat down with him. I think it was at the Laughlin UFO conference and uh, had a beer and chatted with him and Nick Pope and a few others for about an hour or so. He is a very nice man in person. But if... Anybody from the exopolitics movement, and I like your people on the board who are sort of defending Dr. Jacobs, not the person, but what he does. Let's remember to separate the two. If anybody like Alfred Weber or Stephen Greer or Stephen Bassett was to say the things that Dr. Jacobs says, alien hybrids threatening to take over the Earth, they've been here since the late 19th century, they would be laughed out of the room by some of the same people who I think are defending Jacob's work in the abduction thing. And so I think people have to ask themselves, well, okay, why is that? Is it because Dr. Jacobs uh, has a degree, a PhD in history and tenure at Temple University? I think, yeah, that's probably why it is. Is it because Dr. Jacobs has done some good work on the history of the UFO phenomenon? And he did. 
before. Yeah, I think that's true too. But just because somebody's done good work in one area in the past doesn't mean that they get a free pass in the present. And I think that's been the case. Let's talk about the actual work done. Let's talk about his research. Sure. Um, and and I, I, I'm not an expert in this, guys. I'm a documentary documentarian. I've done UFO films, but I don't Me profess too. to be an expert in this. And I know you don't either. And from my point of view, you know, here's a guy who said, look, I've taken the time, any energy, to do these hypnosis regression therapy sessions with these people. And here is the data I have collected. And here are the conditions in which I collected the data. And here are the control questions that I put in to the process. Right? Here's the data that I have right, in point form for you to mull over. Here is my conclusion. Right? I can't see how that's any different. As a matter of fact, it's more meth- um, methodical and to procedure than some of the writings that I've read from the other authors and experts in the UFO field. Uh, And the only thing that I could argue to is that the question of whether or not using hypnosis is valid or invalid in getting information on abduction experiences. And that's, to me, the, the nub of the question. You know, Who else has done research with regards to hypnosis in regards to whether or not hallucinations occur or suggestive actions are induced in hypnosis? That's my question. Well, I think there's there's a large number of people in sort of the psychiatric profession that have done exactly that, research into it. I'm not saying that hypnosis is completely worthless. Um, I'm saying that I think hypnosis, when done by people who have already made up their minds, and I think in the case of Dr. Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, that's absolutely true. Um, but they he all- stated, I'm sorry to interrupt, Paul, but he no, go ahead. over and over again that he did not make up his mind before he collected the data, that this was a result of him parsing the information and the conclusion that he came up with, and that he had to personally grapple with that. He was brutally honest with himself about that in his writing and in his presentations and in his personal conversations. Well, and I would say that even if I accept that, let me say that, okay, so I accept that, then I would say he's flat out wrong in the same way that I would say, and you raise an interesting point about UFO researchers in general, you're right, Mm -hmm. a lot of what he's saying is is not, that was the point I was trying to make earlier about the, the exopolitics guys, it's not all that different than what some people on the fringes of ufology are saying, but What strikes me as weird and a little hypocritical from some of the mainline UFO researchers is that if somebody like Stephen Greer said this, um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Exopols, Mike, the Exopolitics movement, but if, if some of them said it, they would be laughed out of the room. But when Dr. Jacobs says it, guys like uh, and I don't want to pick on Stan, but guys like Stan Friedman and other of you know the older UFO researchers that have known Jacobs for many years will mm-hmm. look and say, well, because it's David Jacobs that's saying this and drawing this conclusion, we have to take it seriously. And I would say, why? Like, what because possible it's a character judgment? But it's not. It shouldn't be about character, though. It should be about evidence. You should look no, at the I evidence. Think, I think it's about a trusting of the person to to ask themselves seriously the same question and to come to an irrefutable answer in their own mind that, yes, this is what the data says to me, therefore, this is what I have to say. 
and I would say that everybody is, you know, eligible to make a conclusion. Well, that's but, my only point. Whether he's right or wrong, I don't know, Paul. <laughs> that's my yeah, well, point. I, that, you know, and that's why I included him, you know, several times in different documentaries. It's because, you know, here's a guy who's actually stating his case, saying he has the data, saying he has the file to back it up. And here's his conclusions. Definitely, you know, not professing to be an expert in the subject, but then again, not saying he's not. I understand that. And, you know, you look at Stan, and if it was yourself, I would I would feel just as comfortable having your opinions, you know, in one of my documentaries. Absolutely. You know, rather than, you know, there's a whole fringe element out there of, like, weirdness, like, you know, this new age sort of uh, fusion with UFOs and that I can't even get my head around. But at least you guys, all of you guys, have plausible ideas. You know, they may not be bulletproof in my mind, all of them, but they, they all have, you know, you know, fairly solid foundations for, you know, the statements that are made and, from and a documentary just, maker's yeah. point of view. Well, if I was doing a documentary on the alien abduction phenomenon, I would have Dr. Jacobs in the film. If I could get him, I'd have Bud Hopkins in the film. So, you, And you raise another interesting point, which I'll, uh, I'll ask you about in just a second. I would just say that, and my last word on this is, I think Dr. Jacobs is the fringe, uh, especially when he starts talking about hybrids and stuff. Oh, my he's, goodness. Let me tell you, I'll tell you about the fringe. You should have been at my party at the UFO conference. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't say he was at the fringe of the fringe. I've seen that, too. <laughs> But I think he's moved out onto the, you know, if there's a tree, if there's a tree limb, as Frank Scully would say, he's moved out to the edge of the tree limb because that's where the fruit well, can be found. Because, yeah, and I agree with you. Is it because is it because of the fact of what he says? It's so outlandish and 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 almost like a Western story. You know, it's like it's like you know we're the Indians and uh, and and this is the great uh, Far East coming to get us. You know, I mean, it's got that sort of element to it. You know. Um, well, and so it, it makes it, it puts it into a sort of like a, uh, a fantasy world for sure. Okay, yeah. so the aliens are cowboys from the future. Yeah. Well, no. Me, yeah, 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 yeah. To me, it would be like, Mike, if you and I, for those who are listening, we both live in Halifax. So we, we both, you and I and Dr. Jacobs are all in Halifax. We all take a car and we all drive across the bridge to Dartmouth. You and I get there and we go, hey. Where are we? We're in Dartmouth. How did we get here? We drove across the bridge. What I think Dr. Jacobs and others that have done this have done, they would get there. You'd turn to them and say, hey, where are you? And he'd say, I'm in Montreal. Really? And, well, how would you get here? Um, I took a plane. Even though he got, you know, so he's in Montreal and he, he drove a, or he flew a plane, even though he, he did the same thing that we did, whereas we took a car and, and we're actually where we are. But on the question of documentaries, because you said something, you know, you're just a documentary maker making films. And I, the same thing, I did a film on Majestic 12 and I left it open for people to, I said, look, here's Stan's evidence. Here's the people who disagree with Majestic 12. Um, and, you know, as documentary makers, I think at the end of the day, we have two choices one we can we can get involved and take a position which i sort of did in best evidence and the other is what we usually do most of the time which is to try and put the information out there and then let the viewer make up their own mind is that sort of how you approach it mike my approach was um based on my own personal opinion which is there's something going on i'm, I'm not quite sure what it is it could be nuts and bolts ufos it could be some sort of weird interdimensional um, coexistence I don't know what it is. It could be both. But uh, there's definitely something going on. Absolutely. If you look at the information and the stories and the data over hundreds and hundreds, if not longer, years, there's something going on. So 
I definitely took a stand that, you know, you should, you should pay attention to this. It is, it is significant. And as Chris Dial said in, in one of my documentaries is that either way, it's a, it's a no, it's a no lose situation because if it turns out that there are aliens in our universe, or I should say other, other civilizations in our universe and we get to interface with them, how amazing is that, is that? And if by any chance that we are the only ones in the universe, then how precious we are. It, you know, and, and in terms of origin, in terms of motivations, who knows? But I definitely, in my in my documentaries, took the side of this is important. This is not frivolous. I'm not going to stand on the fence like uh, a journalist on CNN. You know, you got you need to take notice of this. But I, I try my best to just let the people that I interview and that I profile to tell tell us what they think. Right. I think by doing the films, we've already, unless you think the people are just doing it for dirty, filthy lucre, as they say, I think you've already taken a position to, in the sense that you say, look, this is a valuable subject that deserves consideration. Well, that's a but- really good, really good thing you brought up, dirty, filthy lucres. Um, the question is, and it's, and it's a valid question, is, is it wrong to profit you know, to make money from the research and discussion of UFOs. And I know that that, that polarizes people. Um, m- my personal opinion is, is um, you know, every field of research has professionals. And, you know, yes, it's more freelance, but, uh, you know, does that mean that because you're actually making money selling books like Stan or whoever um, that, that you've sold out? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I was just going to say, I have a lot of disagreements with Stan about substantive issues, but the one thing that I, I will always, I think Stan's a great guy, but you hear people criticize him for, they say, oh, well, he's just in it for the money or his nuclear, his career in nuclear physics sort of blew up, no pun intended, in the late sixties, which is sort Mm -hmm. of true. And he, he went into UFO research because he had to pay for the house or whatever. And I've known Stan for 30 years. Yes, he makes money off it. Yes, he has a nice house in Fredericton. So what? I mean, at the end of the day, nobody says that about Seth Shostak or nope. Michio Kaku or the guy who's, yeah. if you want to just talk science, you know, the guy who's running the observatory here in Halifax at St. Mary's University. They make a living off it. So why shouldn't somebody make a living off of researching the UFO phenomenon? And I would say if you can actually make a living off it, good, good for you. I mean, that's If you fantastic. can actually make a living off UFOs, you're very, very lucky. Hey neighbors, would you like to see the Paracast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the Paracast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Paul Kimball as our special guest host, filmmaker Michael McDonald, who evidently has made some money on making documentary films, but that should not... You know, that should not dictate whether we believe or accept them or not. I mean, let's look at it this way. Even though there are certain elements of television news that we find polarizing, the mainstream network newscasters, 
make millions of dollars a year, but we never assume they're just telling us lies, do we? Well, I do. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> yeah, okay, that actually <laughs> solves the whole question. So basically, we now know what's going on. Paul Kimball says they're telling us lies. End of story. Well, I just assume that, and I don't assume that they're consciously telling us lies. I think they think they're telling us the truth. I just assume that they're probably not telling us the truth. Now, I'm always happy to be proven wrong, and I usually am. But I think it's yep. safer that we start on the assumption that what we're hearing might not be true, and then let's make sure that they can actually show us that it's true, as opposed to just sitting there and going, um, oh, yes, that must be true because somebody in authority said that. And in the UFO stuff, I would say the same thing. If Stan Friedman, I've seen this happen. Because he has such a reputation and largely well-deserved, he can stand in front of a crowd, and I'm convinced that Stan, in front of many crowds, could say up is down and down is up, black is white and white is black, and they would believe him because it's Stan Friedman telling them that. And that's a mistake. You know, nobody should get a free pass, no matter what your credentials are, what your record is. That Stan doesn't fact, get a free pass, Paul. He gets, a, a, he gets, I, I he gets a free pass all the time at these UFO conferences. I've listened to Stan more than once, and, and, and there's t- sometimes when I think, Stan, you are the Spock of the UFO world. You use logic in beautiful ways. And and I don't, I couldn't characterize, I, I don't even want to use that word, I, I, I couldn't characterize what he says in that way. I mean, he does have some points. There's no doubt about it. In a technological society, if you're if, if you're trying to, you know, discover a new world, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to test the defense system. So obviously, UFOs will congregate around defense systems and that they would test defense systems. Why wouldn't you? Wouldn't you do that? And you know what? Whether Stan says it or whether I say it, that's a compelling argument. Well, it's it's to a point a compelling argument, although I would say that if the aliens can get here from there, and let's even assume that there is the nearest possible star system, they are so technologically advanced beyond where we are that at best, their survey of our defensive system should take them a day or two. And then at that point, they would know that nothing we have can actually do them any real harm. Except, so, by the way, if they send Jeff Goldblum with a 1996 <laughs> PowerBook 500 and it connects wirelessly to the alien control system and then sends a virus. And that's it. That's all we need. Well, they, Jeff, they are you listening? That. Yeah. The savior of humanity, Jeff Goldblum and, and Will Smith. Yeah, fascinating. I, I do love that movie, though, where this, what is he? Tommy Lee Jones. Don't forget Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, the the uh, defense secretary, the president goes, well, we've never recovered anything. And the defense secretary starts swearing and goes, well, Mr. President, that's not actually quite true. <laughs> and they're actually at Area 51. And of you course, know, that, Area 51, who do they have as a chief scientist at Area 51? Data from Star Trek Generations. I thought it was Bob Lazar. Yeah, I think he's playing Bob Lazar or whatever. Fred Spiner? Yes. Fred Spiner. He was an independent. He's on my Twitter. (laughs) What? He's a funny guy. He's on my Twitter. He's a funny guy. What does he do these days? Um, Well, if if, if you were... on, listening to him on Twitter, it seemed like he was living in a hotel for a while, but I think he was just joking that uh, that the business was so bad that he had to live in the hotel on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he's getting, you know, residual checks or whatever from Star Trek, the, the abomination, sorry, the next generation, I was going to say the abomination. You, you'd but, hope uh, they would have learned from the first syndication that, yes, it might be a good idea. Yeah, because you don't want to wind <laughs> up like William Shatner. 
living yeah. in a trailer down by the river or wherever, whatever he was doing there for a while. He had a UFO experience, didn't he? Not sure. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, so many people have had UFO experiences. The weird thing is, when you talk, I've never had one, Stan's never had one. I don't, Mike, you've never had one, have you? Not waking. Yeah. Most UFO researchers seem not to have had... I know Mac had never had one. Um, I don't think Nick Redfern's ever had one. I but know. Don, so many people have had real experiences. So many. Yeah, but, but they don't seem to be UFO researchers, with a few exceptions. No. Like Don Ledger had one, right? The Shag Harbor. That's what I love about that. And that's what I love about that anecdotal evidence that people use. You know, People who just don't care, don't give a rat's you-know-what about UFOs, have these incredible experiences that they can't understand. They describe in such a manner that falls into the classifications that have been, you know, figured out over the years. It's incredible. It still happens all the time. And now, with YouTube and the Internet, yes, there's hoaxes out there, but there's a lot of really interesting footage. Who says there's nothing out there on film? Who says there's no photographs of UFO? Well, and it's amazing to me how many people, like, it gets poo-pooed. It's not reported in the mainstream media. And yet, how many people are interested in the UFO subject, even today, after all it's gone through, you know, oh, yeah. the scandals of MJ-12 and the, the blow-ups in the 90s within ufology? And the truth is, here's a you know memo to you in ufology if you're listening. Nobody cares. You're irrelevant. The UFO phenomenon exists outside the narrow world of ufology and all the our petty little infighting. And I know this because every time I've hung out with Stan, not at conferences, but just anywhere, people will come up to him and just talk to him because they know him. They have experiences. They have questions. They're fascinated. I was I had lunch with Don Ledger once at uh, the shoe shop, which Mike would know is a you know a nice restaurant here in Halifax. It was nicer then than it is now. And we're just sitting there, and this guy walks up to Don and says, "You're Don Ledger." Now, if you know Don, he's not exactly the kind of guy that most people would walk. He's not a star. <laughs> but he walks and goes, you're Don Ledger. And I'm, wow, okay, you know. And Don immediately knew what was coming. Lunch over because the guy sat down and he spent 40 minutes telling us his UFO story. And Don listened patiently, had a chat, said, here's my number. Give me a call if you want to talk further. And off they go. And that's uh, yeah, it happens to me all the time, too. Weirdly enough, the more you're in this and the more your public profile gets raised, people will come up to you at parties. I had one two weeks ago. Young actress came up to me at a party, and I was introduced. He said, oh, this is the guy that makes UFO films. And an hour later, she and I had been talking about UFOs and abductions and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it, the, the ability of the UFO phenomenon to survive the lunacy that is ufology never ceases to amaze me that people are because, still interested because something's really happening yeah speaking of something that's happening ladies and gentlemen and others one of the documentaries you did michael was the shag harbor ufo incident yes now that sounds fascinating tell us more in 1967 in the southwestern tip of nova scotia which uh, to um, all you uh, wonderful americans down there which is uh, go to maine and take a right um, <laughs> at the south <laughs> tip of Nova I love that. It used to be just beside the head of, uh, of um, oh darn, okay, forget it. Anyways, uh, the TV show. You know the guy, the funny guy, John Stewart. He used to actually his head used to be just underneath Nova Scotia, but it's not anymore. Anyway, at, at southwestern tip in uh, 1967, there were UFO sightings all across North America, United States, Northwest Canada. There were pilots reporting lights in the sky. There were fishermen record, re, reporting lights in the sky across each other to, to, uh, in their shortwave radios and, uh, VHF radios. And, um, in Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, 
this UFO descends and is seen by four people minimum descending into uh, and, and crashing into the water in Shag Harbor, floating along and then sinking. And uh, people thought a plane had landed. Nobody thought anything about a UFO. They thought a plane had crashed. And so fishermen organized and set out with their fishing boats, and they were too late. Whatever it was, it submerged into the sound of Shag Harbor. There were people on shore that had watched that the RCMP were there, and the people out on the boats, and all they encountered was sort of like a weird sort of golden foam um, that they'd never seen before. And the fishermen in the documentary and, and in conversations had never seen anything like it before. The DND searched, the Department of National Defense searched for uh, several days and, the, and, and brought out, uh, some people saw them bring out some questionable stuff. And that was sort of the end of it. it the, the military admitted that it was a UFO in their documents, uh, under unidentified flying object. The interesting thing is that there was a UFO flap in 1967 all across North America, and in particular in the fall of that year, on October 4th, versus right in the smack in the middle of that. There's the second story, and the second story is 30 nautical miles up the coast, east, to a place called Shelburne, which was a joint U.S.-Canadian top-secret military listening post for submarines to get the submarine screw profiles, uh, information that was collected to identify individual Russian submarines. And they use what's called the SUSOS net, which is an under underwater sono type of uh, uh, transponder device, or it shouldn't say transponder, receiver, um, that collects that data, and it went into a head end at, at Shelburne. So there was Americans and Canadians working at this base. Um, there was some boat activity going on there normally, but all that information was collected there. It was a sensitive place from a, a, a military point of view, a strategic, strategic point of view in the Cold War. So one of those highly sensitive areas like, like for example, Roswell, New Mexico, with the bomber squadron and, and the Avon. So the other story is that, and, and I'll just tell the story as it was told, was that this device could potentially have actually Yes, crashed at Shag Harbor and then limped up the coast 32 uh, nautical miles to rest off Government Point, which is where Canadian Forces Station Shelburne, the joint U.S.-Canadian base, was located, and that they were tended to by Canadian and uh, U.S. warships, um, while a second craft showed up underwater that beings were seen um, surrounding both the crafts, and that some sort of repair operation was taking place that a lot of film footage was taken that many divers had seen. There were grid patterns being flown uh, regularly by uh, Royal Canadian Air Force reconnaissance planes at the same time, a lot of military people involved. There was a debriefing in Project Moonglow mentioned in the United States where Canadians were taken to the United States and debriefed. There were sightings of alien creatures on land. Um, there were photographs taken of the lights of the night of October 467, documented photographs a lot of um, government paperwork traffic. It was, you know, it was a big event. It was as big as Roswell. Bigger, well, bigger, huh? Yeah. The nice thing about Shag Harbor is, as opposed to Roswell, it took place 20 years after Roswell. So, when the investigation is taking place, you're a little closer in time to when it actually occurred. There's also, as Mike mentioned, uh, a much more voluminous paper trail, official paper trail that can be documented with Shag Harbor. There's there's no question about the witnesses the that actually saw the UFO in the sky. Not we're not talking about one or two people who claim to have recovered records. 
you know, multiple independent witnesses who could all corroborate what the other people were saying about what they saw in the sky and what happened when it went down into the harbor, including, as I recall, Mike, RCMP officers, um, yes. witnesses. So I've written about whether or not police officers make better witnesses, but and I don't think they do inherently, but I also believe that police officers are generally honest people who will at least honestly report what it is they think they're seeing. Yes, and, really yeah, and then you've got, as Don Ledger will say, one of the weirdest things in UFO history. Usually what happens is the witnesses will describe what they see as a UFO, and the government agencies will come in and offer an explanation which is, in fact, what happened at Roswell. They, witnesses say, we, you know, we think we've got an alien spacecraft, maybe, and the government says, well, no, it's something else. In Chag Harbor, it's the exact opposite. Most of the witnesses thought they were seeing some sort of crash of an airplane. In fact, as I, as I recall, that's how it was first reported, that a plane had crashed in the harbor. Actually, it was no, the- it wasn't first reported that way, because it wasn't reported until the next day. The first report is something concrete, Chag Harbor, and it was right. really talking about the fact that they had already concluded it wasn't in the airplane. So the first the, the first media release was actually quoting the DND as saying that, that they could not understand what it was. No, exactly. That's the point I'm trying to make. The witnesses themselves, when they first reported it, and I'm pretty sure this was in my film Best Evidence because Shag was one of the ten best cases, and we had Don talking about it. The witnesses reported it as they thought it was an aircraft. It was the government, and this is this is this right. sort of rare thing. It was the military and the government that actually characterized it as a UFO, exactly. which, is kind, which is kind of counterintuitive to how things usually roll in these cases. Well, they, interestingly, in Roswell, the first press release was actually it's a UFO, as you yeah. recall. But that's but that's the <laughs> it was rescinded. In a sense, that's the witnesses, um, and in the case, it, you know, Walter Hott putting out a press release saying it's a UFO, but it's not the official government response, whereas the official no. government response at Shag, as seen in the documents, was very clearly, you know, this is an unidentified flying object. And, and Canada has, a, has actually a corollary to that with uh, Wilbert Smith. When Wilbert Smith had his UFO research uh, detection station in, just west of Ottawa, and the detection instruments, including magnetic anomaly and, and uh, field disruption and, and, all, and radio, uh, radio receivers, uh, were tripped to unequivocally, in their mind, state that something very unusual had passed overhead. They released a press release to, in the same manner, ad hoc, you know, without going to, through channels, saying yeah. they, they detected UFO. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, I don't remember personally, but yeah, no, I've done a lot you of don't? research. No, no, I wasn't here. It was a previous, I was Lauren Bacall in a previous life. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. 
regardless of who Paul Kimball was in his previous life, now he is the co-host of this episode of the Paracast. Where we're featuring Michael McDonald, and we're recalling the Shag Harbor UFO incident, and these two gentlemen both agree this case has more compelling evidence than Roswell. Now, what does the Canadian government say today about this case? Well, I, I, I'd like to just speak up right here because I've been talking to Chris Stiles, who is the original um, investigator, you know, along with Dong Ledger, but primarily Chris, has done the bulldog work of, of trying to figure out Shea Gerber and continues to do so. And yes. Chris, even in the last couple of years, has had discussions with, with um, pilots who had witnessed uh, UFOs that night. Um, he has had a lot of corroborating information happen with regards to the lighthouse, and the, the logs of the uh, Coast Guard, which may have been altered. A lot of weirdness has gone on, and a lot of corroboration, the continual co- corroboration of earlier testimony and evidence still stands up. And like Chris said back in, you know, 2000 when we did that documentary, that, you know, it continues to, uh, uh, new information continues to come out, and, and the story just gets, you know, stronger and stronger. And, and here it is, 2010, and in the last two years, you know, he's talked to new people, you know, people who were flying in, in American uh, uh, transport machines that night over the Gulf of Maine who had close encounters with UFOs that correlated in time, you know, obviously, that night of October 4th, 1967. So this story keeps on going. You know, Roswell hasn't had any new information come up other than new theories in God knows how long. Yeah, and I think that's the 20-year time lag between the two cases. The information, whether you believe it or not, for Roswell was going to be coming out in the 19, the 70s and the early 1980s. And then after yeah. that, if, you, if you're a witness to Roswell and you haven't surfaced by 1990 with all the media attention it's had, you're probably not going to surface. I, exactly. I'm, willing to make, I'm willing to make an exception for one or two people who might be very, very shy. But by and large, you're probably going to have all the at least witness testimony out there and anybody yeah. who would wander in after that you'd have to be pretty suspect but with shag it, the story really only broke when don and chris you know again resurfaced when they wrote their book and you put your film out and we're, we're dealing with sort of the first still the first 10 or 11 years of the investigation of shag and a lot of the people that would have been involved would they'd be older now in their 60s maybe 70s but yeah. there's, there'd still, still be around. some people yeah, the thing that um, I don't think you mentioned, Mike, and if you did, I missed it. Uh, it wasn't just Shag Harbor. It was sighted, something was sighted flying over by an awful lot of people, Halifax. Were oh, about- yeah, well, Chris Stiles, they were 13 years old, and uh, yeah. that night he had an extreme close encounter with the UFO uh, down at the Dartmouth waterfront the same night, and uh, that's what obviously motivated him. Uh, Don Ledger had, I think it wasn't that night, but within that week, he was selling musical instruments and on the road, and he was in the South Shore, and he had an experience, too. So both those guys had personal experiences from 67, and they're not that old. Yeah, one of my best friends, is uh, he's, I think he's 51, and uh, he, as a, as a kid, he remembers seeing it because he lived here in, in Halifax, and he, he remembers it clear as a day, he tells me, all these years later, seeing a UFO fly over Halifax, and it, you know, eventually on its way down to Shelburne, Shag Harbor, which is about, you know, if you have to drive, two and a half hours from Halifax. So whatever it was, it was not only sighted, that's part of the story that's often missed, it wasn't just sighted in Shag Harbor, it was sighted in other areas of the province before it hit Shag Harbor. And for Americans, that would be kind of be like, to use Roswell as an example, people in Albuquerque seeing something that then is seen or crashes in Roswell you know, two and a half hours later yeah. away by, by road. So that's yeah. the kind of distance you're dealing with. Yeah, it just didn't pop in. It flew 
you know, throughout. Oh yeah, the there were there were sightings all the way from uh, Northwest Territories, all through Central Canada and Eastern Canada and the Maritimes uh, by pilots and and other individuals. Um, and and that night there was a flurry of lights and UFO activities all the way from gotta know Nova Scotia, but the the northwestern tip of Digby Neck and and then down. Shelburne, yep. and then, you know, there's a photograph that was taken in Lunenburg by a photographer who was taking a picture of an old boat that he was burning. And it's a beautiful photograph. It's just beautiful. I mean, it's a time lapse. It's five minutes, so you see the stars are all streaked, but the UFOs are in geosynchronous, exact, precise position, three of them. Yeah, and it's the interesting of Independence Day, geosynchronous, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Again. The interesting thing comparing, again, Shag to Roswell is... As far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, the government has never offered a definitive explanation for what happened at Shag. Whereas with Roswell, whether you believe it or not, the government has trotted out a very large report saying, well, it was Project Mogul and here's all the evidence we have. So at least, you know, the government took a position on that in Canada 43 years later. Because I was born in 67, I know exactly what that number is, sadly. Um, 43 years later, there's never been an official explanation, as far as uh, I know. No, they just, they've just prorogued it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That will be lost on anyone who is not a Canadian. But uh, that's but, yeah, proroguing. That's when our prime minister can basically suspend democracy in Canada, which he yeah, does. It's, with, it's also a nice light snack. Pierogies. Yeah, the pierogies. <laughs> yummy. <laughs> Only in Canada, eh? Pity. Yes. Well, we're hearing some Canadian jokes here, ladies and gentlemen. I do not understand anything they're saying. They could be doing all sorts of weird stuff, and I have no clue. But how, the point of it is, though. How could you not have a clue, Gene? Every Canadian, almost every Canadian lives eventually in Arizona. You must know millions of yes. them down. I do. Yeah, all the snowbirds. They go down when they retire. Your neighbor could be Canadian. You should check. Yeah, I mean, Arizona is the 11th Canadian province as far as we're concerned. That's where they all go to retire. So why aren't you down here and we're doing the show live and you're sitting across from me? Why aren't you sitting across from me? I wish I was, because then I'd be in Arizona where it's presumably a lot warmer than it is in Halifax today. But I'm It not was retired. raining today in Arizona and the temperature oh, wow. was in the 50s. Yeah, well, the temperature was in the 30s here today, so there you go. I win. Um, yes, yes, you do. Except we didn't have the rain. But I think it's important, the Shag case, my, fi my final word on this, I don't want to ramble on, but I think it is, there's an American sort of centric viewpoint, particularly amongst Americans, when it comes to the UFO phenomenon. So Roswell is such a big case, even though all of the elements in Roswell pretty much exist in Shag, only better, I think. And yet Shag is largely unknown outside of Canada, and I, I would suggest even within Canada, it's, it's not as well known as it could be. And that's the case, I think, with a lot of really good UFO cases, the 1976 Iranian jet fighter case in, in Iran. Again, largely unknown outside of uh, the sort of core UFO field, because people are so busy talking about Kecksburg or Roswell or, or, God forbid, Aztec, but all of them being cases that took place where? in the United States. And I think that's that's a shame because it sort of puts this veneer of, well, it's just an American thing, right? And the rest of the world then says, well, it's just those crazy Americans. Whereas in the, in truth, it's a, it's a worldwide phenomenon happening everywhere. And I think it's important to never lose sight of that. And cases like Shag Harbor and filmmakers like Mike making films about cases like Shag Harbor remind us of that. And I think that's very important. Mike, was this film shown in the United States? 
No, actually, uh, my first broadcaster was Space Network in Canada, and then it got. Then we sold it to Discovery UK. Now, Discovery UK is not just the United Kingdom, so then they did a you know Eastern European translations of it. So Europe, the United Kingdom, and Canada. But uh, not the United States. So I guess we're not helping. I'm not helping. <laughs> well, you are helping because you're on the show. And even though we originate in America, we have a worldwide audience. And one of the things we've tried to do in the Paracast is to emphasize the fact that the UFO phenomenon, and as a matter of fact, all the paranormal things that we cover happen around the world. And certainly Paul Kimball's yeah, helped a lot because we were talking to guests on a previous session from the U.K., We've just had a session with Christopher O'Brien on animal mutilations where one of our guests was a UK-based researcher. We've talked to AJ Gerverd in Brazil. We've talked to a researcher from Australia. We're trying to emphasize the fact that this happens around the world. Well, I'll make a pledge. I'm going to make a pledge. And I'm going to say it out there to the, the wide public is that distribution of, of, of small documentary films, first of all, is not an easy thing, as Paul would Definitely say, and that even when you do get a distribution deal, the actual distribution of your product can be, you know, less than satisfying. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of my UFO films and uh, I'm going to put them available for viewing on YouTube, which means that people have to watch them, I guess, right now in 10-minute chunks, so that um, we'll solve the problem, you know, of getting a hold of watching, you know, the Shea Harbor UFO incident or... Or, what about uh, DVD distribution? Uh, no, you know, it just doesn't, it's, it, it actually costs, costs me more money and is more of a pain in the butt than it's worth, <laughs> to be honest. You know, it, it, it would cost me money to do it. And people write me and they ask for copies of DVDs and I don't even charge them. I send them copies of the DVDs and uh, I'd rather just sort of put it out there. I've made my money from, from the films. Um, you know, realistically, they don't bring in that much cash. You know, Famous Monsters is a slightly different scenario, and I have a, a bona fide distributor that's handling, you know, the European sales. But North America is a tough nut and crack when it comes to distribution. Well, the United uh, so States. I had to just put it out there. Yeah. The, the U.S. is a tough market to crack for anybody who's not from the U.S. You know, for a country, I love America, don't get me wrong, but for a country that's see, you know, publicly seemingly all about free trade and, you know, all that sort of stuff, it's a very protectionist country when it comes to the entertainment industry very protectionist in the sense that uh, very close-minded you know if we haven't made it we don't necessarily want to see it and i think you know that's a shame it is mike's quite right it's it's relatively easy to sell our films with a good distributor into other countries like best evidence aired in new zealand on tvnz for instance but getting into the u.s that's difficult. And yeah. the shame is a lot of shows, Gene, like yours and others, a lot of the listeners are Americans. And then they, somebody just on the Paracast forums had this thread about where can I buy best evidence? And I said, well, you can't even buy it from me. I don't even have a copy. I mean, I can take the master and go make a DVD for myself, but I don't have a copy sitting around in the house. It's, it's been going through distribution hell. So to try and even get it on DVD is difficult. To get it on television in the U.S., all I can say is I would encourage your listeners to write and say, look, we'd like to see Mike McDonald's Shag Harbor film. Can you air that on the Sci-Fi Channel or on History or whatever? And if enough people write, eventually they might take a look at it. You know, it's interesting, too. Yes, we don't run Canadian product here. But, heck, we make films up in Vancouver all the time. How many films, how many major TV shows are done in Vancouver. What, Fringe from Fox oh, yeah, Network? It's all shot in Vancouver. 
Battlestar Galactica, Stargate. Most of the Stargate shows are shot in uh, Vancouver. And, you know, Vancouver is only the third largest production center in Canada. Toronto often doubles for Chicago. And uh, Montreal is a major production center for French filmmaking. And Halifax is actually the fourth largest production center in, in Canada. We do over $100 million worth of business a year with television, feature films, and, and documentaries. So there's a lot of stuff. I mean, Mike's a great filmmaker. I've done good films, I think. David Cherniak, who's a, a wonderful Canadian filmmaker, released what well, was a two-hour opus on basically the history of the UFO phenomenon. I think it was two years ago. And I don't know if that's aired in the United States yet or not, but he had everyone from Jerry Clark to Stan Friedman in his film. And it was a wonderful film. And if you, I would say if you want to see the one definitive film about the UFO phenomenon, the history of it, that's the film. Yeah. But I don't know if it's ever aired in the United States. I hope it has, but I, I don't think it has. Oh, I hate to see that happening. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Michael McDonald, a Canadian filmmaker. Another Canadian filmmaker is our guest co-host, Paul Kimball, and we all want to see their films here. I'm so curious to see all these films. I want to see the one about Forey Ackerman. I want to see the Shag Harbor UFO incident. I want to see Best Evidence, Paul Kimball one. I want to see it here. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the power. We have a pretty big audience on the Powercast worldwide. A lot of people in the United States. Contact NBC, CBS. Of course, NBC owns a sci-fi channel. Contact all these major networks because they own the cable networks, you know. It's all concentrated. A small number of owners own everything. Universal owns sci-fi. That's right. Yeah. Sci-fi, NBC, and all that stuff. Tell them, hey, we want to see these films. If enough people say we want to see it, you know, they'll go write a check to Michael or Paul so they can get the money they deserve for all the work they've done, and the films will be seen. And I'm doing this unsolicited. They didn't ask me to do this, by the way. By the way, Michael, you owe me. Well, we don't want to go into that. But seriously speaking. You can have 20% of whatever we make, Gene, which will be virtually nothing. I would just be happy. Do you know Errol Bruce Knapp? Not well, no. No, because, I mean, he has copies of the film. Okay. Uh, Alfred Lindbergh has copies. 
love those I'll, guys. <laughs> I'll send you a copy of Best Evidence. Most of Best Evidence, I've like Mike, I put it up on YouTube. But you know, it's all. I think it's always best if you see it on um, television, which is where it was meant to be seen instead of ten minute chunks, so you can see it as uh, it runs in its continuity and context. And actually, you know, frankly, the picture's better too. Assuming can you, you make a deal with Netflix for something like that? Yeah. You can make all sorts of deals, but these people talk to distributors and not filmmakers. So it's very hard to distribute your film if you don't have a distributor. Now, I, for all of my films, I now have distributors. So I think you'll actually start to see best evidence. The U some of the other UFO films are actually online. Stan Friedman is Real is on YouTube in its entirety from start to finish because my distributor, Paranormal Media, put it up there and they make money off advertising and stuff like that but here's the crazy thing and i you know we're sort of off topic but i think it's important for people to realize when they put that up there i went on youtube and i took a look and some of the comments people were making is oh the, you know i don't want to watch this because there's ads on it and i shouldn't have to watch ads on youtube nothing you don't get anything for free people I'm sorry. People have to make money. Distributors have to make money. Filmmakers have to make money, which means you might have to sit through a few ads, advertisements, in order to watch my film in its entirety. And I was just gobsmacked when I saw that, when I saw person after person complaining that they had to sit and watch ads on YouTube. Well, then don't watch the film, I would say to them. But don't ruin it for everybody else. Then that, there, that's my one little filmmaker moment where I say, you know, sometimes you get what you deserve. Well, I think it's come to the philosophy now that we have a DVR. And we just record the shows, and as a matter of fact, a lot of the shows are really good. They get a lousy rating, and then 4 million people are seeing them on a DVR, but they're skipping past the commercials. Of course, I do that, too. So, you know, I can't stand these horrible Windows 7 commercials from Microsoft. That's the point. I know filmmakers and people in the film industry who down, I, you know, they, Battlestar Galactica was a good example. I said, how can you watch Battlestar Galactica? You don't even have cable. He said, oh, we just downloaded it for free off the Internet. I said, do you realize what you're doing? You're putting yourself out of business. That's crazy. But, you know, even filmmakers are doing it. Everybody thinks they can get something for free these days, and that's a mistake. It takes money to go out and do what Mike and I have done over the years, which is make films. It takes a lot of money, doesn't it, Mike, to do it well? It does. It takes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I always get my films from the library or from the video rental place because I agree with Paul. You know, I don't really appreciate having my stuff being, you know, ripped off from me. Not that it happens too much, but it has happened. I can see the point of view, and I mean, this is how we make a living. You know. I will tell you this, folks. Now, everyone knows about my financial woes because they've been spread far and wide. I still manage to pay for my Netflix subscription every month, one of the basic subscriptions. So I have the DVDs. I'm paying the money for it. I can stream the stuff through Netflix. I don't believe in getting stuff free that way. I've never done it, even with music, because I have, you know, close ties with the music industry. My wife used to be a singer. We spend time in the recording studio. So back to UFOs. Yes. Okay. Sorry, we, that was a brief... we made the pitch, and I think it was worth it, because I care enough about what people like you do that I want to see you make a buck. What other documentaries can we mention briefly, Michael? We don't have a lot of time that you've done on UFOs. Um, I did a, a two-part series called uh, Northern Lights, the Canadian UFO Experience. And really what it was about was Canada and the United States and the, uh, the synchronicities that occurred and the events that happened where the two came together with regards to UFOs and investigating UFOs. So I did that. Um, I did intruders, and I did the um, Shag Harbor UFO incident. 
Um, that's it for UFOs. I did one on I did one on science fiction art and of course the Forrest J. Ackerman documentary. I'd love to do another UFO documentary, but I don't know what it would be. And um, I think it's going to be some time before I approach that subject again. I need to get away from it, to be honest. I need to sort of not think about it so that when I do come back to it, I'm more open-minded and, and have a fresher experience. Do you do mainstream films such as dramas and stuff, or is it all documentary? I am teaching now. I'm teaching film at a uh, local college, and I'm really enjoying that a lot. Um, so I've taken a break from filmmaking for the last seven or eight months. And uh, I think I'm going to probably, you know, I'm getting itching to do another project. I'm thinking more along the dramatic and less documentary lines. Mike and I have always talked about working together. And, you know, I'll make the plug if you're, if you're, look him up on IMDb. It's not just you, like me, I don't just do UFOs. You did Barker VC, didn't you, Mike? Or you were involved? Yeah, I did a, I did a documentary about a World War One flying ace, an incredible guy named William Barker. Yeah. He died in 1930. Yeah, I'm interested in the paranormal other than UFOs. I'm interested in theology, so I've done some stuff for vision. You know what I'd really like to do something is on the, is on the apparition, apparitions, the religious apparitions like the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'm inter very interested in doing something on Medjugorje. That's sort of where my heart is telling me to go right now. I, I, the great thing about it, you know, studying and thinking about it, making films about UFOs for years and years and years is, is I have that information inside me. And if I see any interesting coincidences in the research that I get into in the future, I have that experience to sort of draw on, so I'm really thankful for it. But by the same token, I'm done thinking about UFOs. <laughs> Unless I see one. I've been robbed of seeing one for 48 years. So I, 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 until I see a UFO, <laughs> I've got to go someplace else. Let me ask you, just before Gene shuts us down, one other thing that you did, um, you did the Supernatural Investigator episode with Mac on Life on Other Planets, but you yourself, you were actually the subject, weren't you, of another episode on the Antichrist? Yeah, we did a um, we did a, a sort of like a little bit uh, investigation on the Antichrist, which was really an investigation into popular culture and theology. Um, and so we we met we met some interesting characters along the way because it was very was just... much a get in there and and talk to people kind of documentary. Yeah, Jose Luis just... Miranda. De Jesus, yeah, he says that he's you know the Christ reincarnate. He has a, uh, about eight hundred thousand followers, and you know he has a big business going. So we interviewed him and some others. I was just going to ask you, having dealt with people who sort of are into the Antichrist, and having dealt with people who are into UFOs, and met some of the weirder people in the UFO field, which which is weirder? You know, the sort of weirdos and the Antichrist thing or the UFO weirdos. And I don't mean everybody in ufology is a weirdo, but I mean the fringe. Um, I'm raising my hand. I'm a weirdo. I plead guilty. Go ahead. I, I honestly have to say that, you know, when it comes to UFOs, I think that, believe it or not, saner people prevail. <laughs> well, compared to what, the Antichrist? I would hope so. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to, to, to delving into the Antichrist and things like that, I, I, I would stick to UFOs if you don't feel like just... <laughs> Yeah, I, I honestly I find that the that UFO ufology ufology has developed over the years, and that it is you know worthy of pursuit. And more and more people who probably wouldn't have associated with it before in terms of research are willing to look at it, and um, it's acknowledged that something's going on. 
when it comes to a theological subject, there's a lot of personal apparent feelings and, and emotions that come into play. And you get a lot more of the fringe element quicker in terms of like basic research. The ufology is, is, is more developed, I think. All right, when you're researching the Antichrist, is there supposed to be such a character or are you just looking well, after what the Catholic the Church might say on the subject? Well, there's many writings, but the Antichrist is basically one of three individuals that appear in the uh, of Revelation. You know, the other one is, is also Satan himself, and the other one is the false prophet. So they work as a sort of a triumvirate of evil, right, which sort of offsets the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit of the good. So the Antichrist is given a lot more sort of, he's actually a second in command to Satan when you look at it from a theological point of view. But uh, people automatically equate the Antichrist with Satan, when in actual fact, he's more like Satan's first mate. (laughs) (laughs) They've obviously never seen The Devil's Advocate, where Al Pacino plays Satan and Keanu Reeves plays, you know, the sort of incipient Antichrist to be or whatever. Exactly, yeah. Is that so odd? Because my my limited theological understanding, and I always get confused about the Holy Trinity, where God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are separate yet the same. But really, isn't Jesus sort of God's number two, if you sort of divvy them up? So if you have God and Satan at the top, then you've got the Antichrist. Isn't the Antichrist sort of, my understanding always was the sort of other side of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that's, I think a lot of people draw that parallel, and I think that arguments could be made for that, for sure. Who was, now when you talk to people, I would assume you might have asked the question, hey, Frank, Who's the Antichrist? What was the weirdest uh, Maya answer? Treya, Maya Treya was one answer. There's a gentleman I met. Um, geez, I'm sorry. I can't remember his name right off the bat. It'll come to me. He looks like Didi Ramon. Uh, Pastor Harry Walter. Uh, and uh, you can find him on the Internet. Um, Pastor Harry Walter. He looks just like Didi Ramon. And uh, he is using a Hebrew calculator because the Hebrew letters have numeric values. And uh, scourging through the Bible with the Hebrew calculator, and he's discovered that Maitreya, which is a Buddhist deity of some sort, um, is the true Antichrist. And then if you look at his his face, it looks just like the face on Mars. And if you look at the Sphinx, it looks like the Sphinx. And you know, oh my. yeah, and you know, and that's you know, you get that right. And you also get that in the UFO field. Believe me, <laughs> I think so too. You know, did, I mean, a lot of people did, would say that Theo Sprinkle is like, you know, gone a little bit too far in that direction. And, you know, some of the stuff he said in the interview that we didn't use. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe you wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. We'll just keep that out. <laughs> the great thing about doing interviews for documentaries is all the stuff that you see or in the U.S. you don't see on TV. There's 80 hours sometimes or 60 hours of footage that we don't put in the film for any one of a number of reasons. Uh, so I've got 18 hours of footage with Stan Friedman when I did the Friedman film, of well, which 18, maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe third. Well, you know, you can easily fill 18 hours that boy. Yeah, Stan never shuts <laughs> up. He's the best interview ever, and I say that with all affection. You just turn the camera on, say go, and every 30 minutes when the tape would run out, you'd stop him and change tape, but that was it. So he's the perfect interview. But you know talking about a whole range of things that didn't fit the film or whatever. How can you miss the opportunity when you're sitting there as a filmmaker with Stan or Kevin Randall or Carl Flock or whatever to not let the camera keep rolling? You know, you know it's not going to make it in the film, but sure, talk to me about this or talk because you never know when you're going to use it. Down the when road. I interviewed Stan for the Shag Harbor UFO incident, I mean, Stan got was the guy who sort of said to Chris Stiles, 
listen, young fella, you're on to something. If you really want to take this ball, I, you know, I, I endorse it. You should go for it. And here's what I suggest you do. He's really great that way. Absolutely. Yeah, no, he's a very, yeah, they both cited him, both Don and Chris, as being the guy who pushed them to do a real investigation. Oh, right, yeah. Harbor. What, he, what um, he said, to, but, but I'm sorry, but the point of what I was saying was that when I was interviewing him, his thing is Roswell and, you know, the other crash site, and that's his sort of thing. And uh, so I had to take from his Roswell comments, mostly, the reasoning as to, from his point of view, why this might happen, because that's what people want to know. Okay, okay, Mike McDonald, filmmaker, so okay, we're being infiltrated by aliens, but why? Because it's really not who that matters, it's why. Why am I, why am I here in this world? You know, it's why. And so that's what I try to get these guys to tell me, is the why. And so with Stan, you know, I definitely got like 50 to 1 more than I needed. <laughs> yeah. he, could, he could talk about Shea Herbert. He knew a bit about Shea Herbert. We're just but about out of time, guys. I'm going to have to pull the plug. I have the little plug yes, here, you know. And no, what no, I do is I send plug. you 10,000 volts, each of you, through your computers. No! Oh, there's Sorry. the trickster again. That was the trickster. Yeah. He just, no. he, just, he just came from the other show. Yeah, I'm the trickster. <sighs> Michael McDonald, how do we find out more about the things you've done? Uh, if you want to find out, um, pantiltinvoice at gmail.com. Send me an email. Ask me whatever. Hey, that works. Pantiltinvoice at gmail.com. Okay, Paul Kimball, where can we find your blog? It's Red Star Films, all one word, dot blogspot dot com. And I will go to the Paracast forums. I will encourage Mike to sign up too. You never know. But I oh, will yeah. go to the Paracast forums and I will put a little uh, thing up when the thing comes on the show saying, hey, here's where you can see Mike's blog and his IMDb thing and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to add myself in right now. He's adding himself. He's joining forums dot the Paracast dot com. Michael McDonald, thanks for joining us. Us in the Paracast. Paul Kimball, thanks as always for being a great co-host. Thank you so much. It was great fun talking to you. And you too, Paul. See you Saturday night for beers, Mike. Saturday night. The Paracast is a copyrighted presentation from Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. <laughs>